Well, great to be with you. Uh, it's uh, a very special time to be together talking about these things. Most astonishing truth that uh, Christ is risen. And great to hear you uh, respond to Tamara's invitation to say he is risen, he is risen indeed. When I was, um, when I was first converted, I, went to a, I, I got converted and went to a little church just near where I lived. It was a church of about 60, 70 people, older people, and uh, back street uh, in a suburb down in Sydney. And um, whenever, whenever they did that little thing of uh, he is risen, he is risen indeed, this is how it went. The minister would go, he is risen, and they'd all go... He is risen indeed. And it really felt quite depressing right at that moment, <laughs> you know, when it's meant to be a kind of enthusiasm. But here's the thing, um, if you said to them, Aussie, uh, uh, Aussie, Aussie, and they, you know, they went, yeah, just like you. They did, that's how they did it, just like that. They, they went, oi, oi, oi. And so people are different, aren't they? Some people um, are extroverted and enthusiastic and you ask them to say something to us all, and people's very enthusiastic. The rest of us are just a little, we're just a bit cautious, we want to step back, but brothers and sisters, the thing that we're talking about tonight really is the most astonishing thing. It's a thing to celebrate, it's a thing to um, uh, speak with energy and enthusiasm to others about, it's a thing uh, that has changed so much, it has changed everything, the resurrection of a man the man, the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, there are moments in life that do change things. Um, uh, one day, uh, you might, there might be that moment you meet that girl or meet that guy and get married and that changes everything dramatically. I remember when that happened for us. We, uh, Kathy had been invited by um, a friend, a, a young man who was keen on her, to come to a conference which I was at. There was a, some hundreds of people there and and uh, he brought her along, happenstance, she wasn't meant to be there, she was from another context and place, but brought her along to this thing. But the poor bloke, as soon as, as, soon as Kathy in the distance, spied me, <laughs> it was all over. <laughs> she was smitten. Um, just, I, mean, I, I mean, you look at me now and you think, what, what, how could that have possibly been? Well, just think Brad Pitt. <laughs> and you won't have a clue what I actually looked like, but there we are. Um, <laughs> There are, but that moment uh, changed our lives. Do, do, do you see, the, just the, the happenstance that we happened to be in the same place and uh, the decisions we made, the little choices that we made all added up together and bang, life is very different because of that. Um, now, in many ways, that's something of what we're talking about tonight, but it's very, very different too um, because the moment of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ from the dead changed human history. It didn't just change his life or our lives, it changed the fact of human death. It smashed open a doorway from death into life forever for humanity. It changed the world and the universe forever. It's not too much to say. The Lord Jesus' resurrection actually brought into existence, created in a sense, a whole new existence. It really is quite a phenomenal thing to talk about. It's staggering. Um, you know, some of the changes that he brought by virtue of the resurrection are obvious. Um, and they're obvious because the resurrection isn't a resuscitation. Just worth getting this cleared up. The resu- when we're talking about a resurrection, we're not talking about someone who was sick for a little while and then got better. We're not talking about someone who had been unconscious for a short period of time and was brought back to consciousness. We're not even talking about someone who momentarily was dead, who uh, swooned, you know, who um, 
with all the terrible things that had happened, just went into a kind of a coma, and then after a couple of days woke up from the coma. We're not talking about that. That's a, that's a resuscitation where someone comes back to life, yes, but comes back to life to live the life that they were living to eventually die again. That is not what we're talking about. When we're talking about the resurrection, we're talking about a dead person, a broken person who had lost all their blood person, whose body and soul was separated from one another, dead, who was in the grave for three days beginning to rot, dead, not just unconscious but dead and buried, dead, with a gaping wound in his side from a spear that had been thrust in to cause the blood to flow out, dead, dead, four days dead, four, four day, F-O-R, days dead. And that dead person, it's that dead person that was made alive again. And not just alive to then die again, but alive, flesh and bone, but with a new kind of body that was a body for a new age, resurrected to a new era of life and existence that would never die, that would never see corruption, that was immortal, resurrection. This is the kind of thing we're talking about. And the implications of that are astonishing, if it's true. If that really was what happened 2,000 years ago. Now, begs that question exactly, did it really happen? Because so much rests on it, so much flows out of it. Did it really happen? Really? A man dead for three days, raised again, not just to be better, but to be a whole new creature, creation, to exist for... Did that really happen? Well, there's a great deal of evidence. We haven't got time to go through it tonight, but we do often go through these things, so I don't want to go through it just again tonight. But if you need to explore it, there's uh, an opportunity in the coming weeks. We run a, a series called Explaining Christianity. You can come along to that, where we open the whole thing up and look at the evidences to be as upfront as possible. Um, and let me just give you a quick taste of the lines of argument that you can go down to consider the evidence for the resurrection claim. There's quite a number of them. The fact of the empty tomb. The fact that there is no body. In the very place where a group of people proclaimed the resurrection, you could walk two minutes to the tomb where the body had been put, but the body was gone. Now, how do you explain that? That's an historical fact. It's not just myth and legend now. We're talking about concrete facts. How do you explain the empty, empty tomb? Who took the body if he hasn't been raised? Whoever took it could have brought it out. Why didn't they bring it? All of these questions are part of the piece that needs to be discussed. And the fact that the first witnesses that we're told about were women. Now, in our day and age, that makes <laughs> that is of no account. So what? Well, back in the first century, uh, if you wanted to if you wanted to bring a, a, a fiction upon the world and convince the world that um, this extraordinary thing happened, then you wouldn't create in your story the first witnesses that declare that happening to be women, just the nature of the first century and the way they thought about it. Right, wrong, wrong. But there is the nature of it. Um, but the fact that those first records talk like they do is a solid piece of evidence that those presenting those records weren't interested in fabricating. They wanted to tell us what happened exactly as it happened, whether you like it or not. Whether you find it attractive or credible or what. This is what happened. The first witnesses, God endorsed women by that. The early church, the existence of the early, the fact from the proclamation of this news of the resurrection, a massive crowd of thousands of people in Jerusalem became followers of Jesus. How do you account for that fact? 
when they were once previously a group of afraid, frightened fishermen. What do you make of the conversion of the Apostle Paul, a man who was utterly opposed to the things of Christ, but has now written the most extraordinary series of letters, having been converted to the person of Jesus, persuaded himself that the resurrection occurred? How do you make sense of the lives of the first witnesses? You see the number of pieces of evidence that you can run your way down and think into this all of it. The, the first witnesses um, poured out their whole life proclaiming this is what we saw, this is what we felt, this is what we touched, this is what happened. Kill us if you like. All of them proclaiming the same message. The evidences are extraordinary outside the Bible, inside the Bible. It happened. And that it did changes everything. There are some that are very obvious, the changes it makes. Uh, and I'll, let me just very briefly run through some of the very obvious changes. I want to talk to you about a change that occurs because of the resurrection that's not so obvious. But let me give you the very obvious implications. It's not hard to think this through. If, if there is a, a man who has died, three days later, rises again, flesh, bone, body, into a new existence where he'll never die, after death, into a life beyond the grave. What does that tell you about our life now? It tells you this is not it. All you need is one man to come back from the grave to tell you there's more beyond the grave. And that's what we have in the resurrection of Jesus. Evidence, concrete evidence, that this life is not it. There's an age to come beyond this life, to live just, just for this life, to live for these 60, 70, 80, 90 years, is foolishness in the extreme. When after death, the resurrection of Jesus demonstrates concretely that you have a whole new existence beyond that what will you do with that existence how are you sure you're in that existence properly it, it tells us to us something about the lord jesus who he is um, he came to do this and proves the genuineness of what he came to do by his death and then resurrection uh, which demonstrates that he is the key to that future in some fashion he is the first, the Bible said, the first fruits from among the dead. He's the one who holds the keys of life and death. There is something special about the person of Jesus. Obvious implication. What you do with this person, Jesus, matters critically. He is the key to your future and unique among the religions. There is no other religious leader, no credible, there's no, there's no substantial religious community in the world, in history, that has spoken of their founder as having died and raised, been raised again to a, to a physical existence that was witnessed like this. There's myths and legends of very obscure things that have happened in the past, but nothing like this. Which means the Lord Jesus is not just one religious leader amongst many. He's not, he's not even the best. He's the only one. The, the implications of the resurrection are astonishing, profound, life-changing. And if you, you're here tonight and you are puzzling about the things of Christianity, which, which was me. So I was converted sort of late teens uh, towards um, university time and, you know, I wanted to explore and understand and where I started was the resurrection. I'd urge you to chase that too. It's the great place to start because if you can determine the evidences for the resurrection being true, then the whole thing follows. The whole thing's laid out in place. And I was, I was very fortunate and blessed to be able to go to that small church uh, full of a, a bunch of humble but extraordinarily godly people who weren't exuberant, don't measure them by how exuberant they were, but they were faithful, godly people who helped me explore the evidences in a safe context where I could wrestle with things. And we hope that's the church for you tonight. 
We hope this can be a place where you can come along and you can bring your genuine questions, your doubts, your worries, your fears. What about this? What about... And actually have an opportunity to explore it safely. The evidences will, sustain, will be sustained. I mean, you don't need to worry that you're going to find something that no one ever thought of. I've got a question for you. We will have heard it before. Uh, the, people have thought about this for 2,000 years. It is, it's very compelling and powerful to dig into it, dig into the resurrection, start there, come along to explaining Christianity in the next couple of weeks. You see, the, the, the fact of the resurrection of Jesus changes profoundly the world we live in. This life's not it. To live for it is it's nuts. But there are some things that it changes that aren't immediately obvious to us in our context. And that's where I want to take us tonight. There's a passage that we've chosen to look at, which is Romans chapter 8, which talks about the resurrection. Let me show you this, see if we can get these slides happening. What I've done is I've, I've put the text up here on the screen and I've highlighted some things I want to draw your attention to. You see, this passage talks about the resurrection. Christ Jesus, who died, more than that, was raised to life. So we've got a passage that's reflecting on the resurrection. And I want to show you how that actually brings to our attention one of the implications of the resurrection that's not immediately obvious, but is profoundly important for us. Profoundly important for your security, your stability, your confidence for the future and into eternity. Hugely important, but an implication we don't regularly look at. So let me take you through this. You see, there's the text. Uh, it, it references being raised to life, the resurrection, but it does it in the context of using a couple of words there that are important to appreciate. If you yeah, See the word justify and the word condemn. Now, these two words come out of the legal realm, out of the courtroom scene. And the man who wrote this, Apostle Paul, he was a terrible opponent of the things of Jesus, uh, miraculously turned around when he saw the risen Lord Jesus. He's written this message, uh, the book of Romans, and in the earlier part of this message, he talks a great deal about condemnation and justification. And I want to uh, just explain something of these, the words meanings to uh, help us get into this text. You see, these two words, they come out of the courtroom, the realm of the courtroom. It's what the judge in a courtroom does with someone who's brought before the courts. He either condemns them or justifies them. He either condemns them, you've come, we've recognised you are guilty, I now pronounce the verdict upon your life, condemned. And the person is taken off for judgment. There's one proclamation that the, the judge can lay down. But there's another one, which the language of which we don't use much anymore, but it's the language of you, he could declare condemned or justified. Now, what is the word justified? The word justified means um, uh, free to go. No case to answer for. It's as just as if you are righteous justified, declared, it's a declaration by the judge that you are in the right and you are free to go. Now these are the two words that uh, the Apostle Paul uses in this context um, but here particularly he's thinking about the verdict of the eternal courtroom, the heavenly judge, the great judgment by God. And it's in the context of um, celebration, actually, uh, of recognising that actually God is for us. Look at the very first 
line there, if God is for us, who can be against us? Um, If God is for us, God is the God, therefore, who doesn't condemn, verse 34, leave it on that slide there, but doesn't condemn, but rather justifies, declares us to be right. You see, that's the nature of what he's talking about here. The whole context is the eternal courtroom with God the judge. Now, this particular, this reality of God's judgment, which is all the way through the Bible, is a reality we are determined to avoid ever thinking about. But it's an event the Bible keeps driving us towards and driving us towards. We will, he says, the Bible says, we will all one day die and stand in that courtroom. Now, it's often hard to appreciate that at our age. But this, it's interesting, the last couple of days I've had some funny interactions with old people, really old people. And um, one, was, uh, one was funny because I was, I was walking out of church and there was a, an older couple who'd been around church for a long time. He's, in his, he's 94 and uh, she's in her 90s. They were walking up there and, and he was looking sprightly. He was looking up and around and I said, how are you going? He said, I'm, I've had my heart replaced, I've had my lungs replaced, my, everything else has been removed. I don't know what it was, but he's feeling great. And he said, I don't know why the Lord still got me here. I think he's got something for me to do. I think there's something special he wants me to do in my last years. And I said, I think I know what it is. Have kids, have more kids. And um, it, was interesting to, it was interesting to see the different reactions between him and his wife, actually. His wife uh, kind of collapsed and he was smiling happily. So I didn't know what to do with all that. But there's a man who is 90s, in his 90s, looking very energetic. But I'll tell you what, you know, you or two, he'd be dead. He'd be dead. I was with another 90-year-old this last week who uh, was like you, energetic, vibrant, young. He is now lying in a bed, um, unable to care for himself at all in his last weeks, months. That is your future. You may have a better path towards it, a harder path towards it, but you will go there. We will all one day die and we will all one day stand before God in the heavenly courtroom to await his verdict on our life. Have you ever been in a context where you've, um, you've done something wrong and you've been caught out for it? Do you know the emotions that happen? I think most of you do have been caught by the police, haven't you? Most of you have been speeding. You do that, you know, that up the freeway, 120 when you should be doing 110 and you think it's okay because you're the best driver in the world and you can do it, no one else can but you can and and then suddenly you hear behind you the siren. If you had that, I've never had that experience. If you had that experience where, <laughs> and, and your gut drops and there's this adrenaline peak and there's this fear and anxiety and you hope the guy's going to drive past you but he doesn't, he pulls you over and it's a terrible feeling to find yourself guilty and then judged guilty and condemned for that guilt. That's trivial compared to one day standing before the judge of the universe knowing you are guilty, awaiting his verdict on your life. 
the, the, the gut drop, the clench, the fear, you've been caught. You see, imagine, imagine at supper tonight, someone came up alongside you and said, um, you know, every secret thought that you've thought, every word that you've said you shouldn't have said, and your browser history is going to be displayed in church tomorrow. It's been sent through, you've been caught. How do you feel? It's terrifying to be found guilty when you are guilty, to have it exposed. That day is coming. We don't want to think about it. But Jesus is emphatic because he's the one who says that every secret word, every word uttered in secret will one day be proclaimed from the rooftops. It will all be out. And the consequences of that before God, the holy God of the universe, will be eternal condemnation. You know, our world has done such a good job of eradicating all thought of this kind of event so that we can live without fear. They don't want us to live with fear and they've done a great job of thinking, no, 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 don't worry about it, it's not going to happen, it'll be all okay. But pretending there's no judgment doesn't stop it being so. The earlier part of this Romans message actually makes the emphatic point that there is, chapter 3, verse 10, no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. There is no one who does good, not even one. So therefore, no one will be declared right in God's sight. No one will, no one will receive the verdict of justified, free to go on the basis of works of the law, on the basis of their righteousness, on the basis of their efforts. You know, we don't want to hear it, but that doesn't make it not true. This is actually one of the least obvious implications of Jesus' resurrection, in fact, um, because he's the one who taught these things. He's the one who taught that your every secret thought and word and deed will be exposed before the Holy God. He's the one who taught that it's more dreadful to fall into the hands of the living God. He's the one who taught these things. And the resurrection says that whatever he taught is true. The resurrection vindicates him to be the one who truly is the Son of God, come from God. And so now, suddenly, if Jesus truly has been raised from the grave, we are now in a whole world of pain. He says, wake up from your slumber. Because you are racing towards a judgment of condemnation. Now, Jesus didn't do all of this just to leave us there. He stirred and warned and and shed tears. He did all of this because he came to free us from condemnation. He came to wipe our slate clean. So that there is no case to answer before God which is the very thing Easter, the Easter weekend is about, which takes us back to the passage you see. It is an astonishing message. Now, go back if you wouldn't mind. If God is for us, God is for us. But if he is for us, who can be against us? If the God of the universe is one who has made us friends, 
Now, how can you know that God is for you? Well, the next verse. He's the God who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. He's the God who paid the most costly price of his own son to pay for us. Now, I know we talked about this on Friday. And we should just move on to the resurrection, but I find myself unable to go to the resurrection without again reflecting on the cross because there is the centre. God gave up his son's life for us. He gave his life in place of our life. He took upon himself our guilt. You see, we deserve to be condemned, to, to have that declaration in the heavenly courtroom of condemned, eternal judgment. We deserved that. And yet the Lord Jesus came and stood in our place and took the punishment we deserved. You, you, you see, we, we are, we've come into the heavenly courtroom and the judge declares condemned, but then steps off his judgment seat and comes and takes our place and receives the judgment that we rightly deserve so that we can receive the declaration of justified. No case to answer for. So that we can have our history of sin wiped clean. When the browser's open, there's nothing there. Because the Lord Jesus has taken the shame upon himself. It's gone. Not just gone. Gone because someone else bore the shame of it, paid the price and took the punishment. But it's gone. Because God did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us. How do you think about this God? Do you know one of our messages here constantly is to try and help us recalibrate the way we think about God, how we conceive and understand him. Because many people don't think much of God, they think little of him, and that in itself is a tragedy, of course. But he is the God who did not spare his only son. We were staring down the barrel of an eternity condemned, but he graciously gave us the gift of his own life. Now, the, I should say, the point of what Paul is saying in this section of the Bible, which is full of celebration and joy and thanksgiving, the, the point of this part of the passage is that it's based on an assumption that his listeners, his readers, have come to appreciate what has been done for them and so they've actually they've actually thrown themselves onto God's mercy in Christ and become followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, entrusting themselves to Him. They become Christians. The assumption is that He's writing to people who have become followers of Jesus and so all of this is true of them. But I don't want to make that assumption amongst all of us tonight because it may well be you're, you're here tonight and you've not done that. And, and I, I want to offer tonight, tonight's a great night to do it. Tonight's a great night to do it. Because if you haven't, you, you, are, you are on your own. The cross, the cross of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus become therefore a pledge to us that God is for us. The holy God is for us. He gave his most precious gift. He must be for us. Now track this through. Because we now get to the resurrection. Um, so if you come through a little bit further, it is God who justifies. It's God who declares no case to answer for. 
you, 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 are, you are accepted by me and right with me. The whole thing has been cleansed because of my son's death for you. Who is it that, that therefore condemns? No one, he says. How can anyone condemn if God is the one who justifies? Um, our standing before God is based on his declaration of justification. And if God has said that over us, if God, the God of the universe, has said, you are just before me, who is left in the universe who can bring any condemnation? Now, I'm again talking to you Christians. I'm talking to those of you who have turned back to the Lord Jesus and thrown yourself on his mercy and put yourself under his rule. Talking to you, this has been declared over your life. This has been declared over your life. Justified. Not because of anything you've done, not because you're worthy of it, but because of his mercy and the sacrifice that he has paid he then is able to say in the heavenly courtroom, slate wiped clean, justified, free to go. The one who has said this is God. This is Paul's point. You are accepted by him because he has said it is so, which therefore means that that voice that you hear in your head, in your heart, there are many of us who experience this, aren't there, where you go through life and you find yourself doing that thing again. You find yourself in a pit of despair, anxiety, depression, and you find yourself, this voice rises up and said, you're unworthy. How can you call yourself a Christian? How can you imagine that God would be for you? And this guilt rises up with voices what do you say to that voice? Here's what you say. It's true I am unworthy. And every time I fail, it proves how unworthy I am. That's nothing new. I am unworthy. But here's the astonishing truth that the God of the universe has not spared his only son but given him up for me so that any who look to the son and put their faith in the son and his gift on my behalf, paying the penalty for me, is justified. God says I'm justified, unworthy as I am. Be gone. Free my heart. And now in verse 33, he, he drives it home. You see, Christ Jesus who died, he's back there at the cross, Christ Jesus who died, but now he adds another piece. More than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is interceding for us. Now, there's a new thought. There's an implication of the resurrection that I'm suggesting to you is not obvious to us, but is profoundly important. Because of the resurrection, Paul says, there is now one standing at the right hand of God interceding for you, pleading your case in the courtroom. 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, talks about us needing an advocate with the Father, a legal, it's all legal language, of a barrister who can be in the heavenly courtroom arguing your case for you, you see. And what Paul says is the resurrection of the Lord Jesus means that you have such a one who is before the right hand of God the Father pleading on your behalf, interceding for you. Now you think with me about this for a moment. So you are caught in a crime and you find yourself in a courtroom before a judge. 
What is it you desperately need? You desperately need someone who knows their way around the courtroom, someone who's an experienced advocate, uh, uh, a barrister, a lawyer of some kind, who can plead your case for you. Now, if you're innocent, you want to have a very clever one to make sure that your innocence is brought to the court and made very obvious and so on. If you're guilty, what kind of barrister do you want if you're guilty? What kind do you want if you're guilty? A shady one. One who can manipulate the court. One who can hide stuff and spin stuff, right? Well, how does that work with this? Because we come into the heavenly courtroom guilty. And we have an advocate. Does that mean he's shady? Spinning things? No, 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 no. The point of the Lord Jesus being an advocate, uh, an intercessor, is that he intercedes on our behalf by applying the merits of his death for you. You see, it's not as if the death of Jesus on the cross is one thing, which is a piece of your salvation, and now his resurrected interceding life is another piece. No, 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 no. Jesus' death on the cross was the death of the one of infinite majesty and worth, which is sufficient to pay entirely for your sins, so that his death on the cross finished the work of your salvation. But his intercessing, his interceding work as the resurrected one is applying the finished work of his death to you in the courtroom. It's the Lord Jesus saying, um, she has been covered by my death. She is free to go. My death worked for her and paid fully. He has nothing more to answer for because I died for him. And the Lord Jesus, risen as he is, pleads the death, his death on your behalf forever. So that you can be saved completely through this one. Now, it's not because the Heavenly Father's reluctant and needs someone to keep arguing the case. No, no, it's the Heavenly Father who gave his Son. The Father and Son are together in this work, guaranteeing that you will be saved by the death of Jesus if you'll put your faith in the Lord Jesus. Um, now, <laughs> I. I Again, I'm conscious there's so many different people amongst us tonight. There are many of you, of course, who have turned to Jesus and put your faith in him, but there are many amongst us who haven't, and we're so glad you're here. We want you to continue and explore the things of Christ. But I don't want you leaving tonight imagining this just covers you. That, 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 That you are okay in that heavenly courtroom. I don't want you going thinking that. Because outside of the gift of the Lord Jesus' death for you, you will be on your own. You will stand before the holy God of the universe, laid bare, with all the horror of your every sinful thought, selfish thought, lustful thought, greedy thought, laid bare. And you will have no one to help you. And you will find only the condemnation that is owed to sinful people. The Lord Jesus, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus says that this is true. No matter what society around us says, the Lord Jesus' resurrection says this is real. And it is a terrifying truth. That's why um, your Christian friends 
are so annoying because they're convinced by the resurrection these things are true so they keep bugging you to get you to church to get you to think about these things to keep be thankful for them they love you because they're convinced by the resurrection of the truth of these things if Jesus has been raised and all he says about eternity and judgment is true terrifyingly true but these things are for you if you would but just turn Turn back to God and humble yourself and put your life in His hands. But for those of you who are with Jesus, the point of all of this for you tonight is that your security and confidence is established in not just one way, but many ways to build up your strength and stability. God says, I'm for you. I've given my son's life for you. God says, you are secure in me because that same son who died for you, that I sent to die for you, has been raised again and stands beside me, pleading on your behalf his death for you. So we are to forever together in endorsing the merits of his death to cover your sin. You know... Um, Many of us feel like in the midst of terrible circumstances that we need someone to pray for us and it's a good thing to do if you're in terrible circumstances, get friends to pray for you. But throw off the thought of ever imagining other people's prayers are more powerful than your own. You see, throw off the thought of needing a priest to go to the priest who's somehow closer to God and if he would but just pray for me, then his prayers would... No, no, no. We have the Lord Jesus. We have God's Son himself, seated at the right hand of the Heavenly Father, one with God, pleading your case, interceding for you. You can't do better than that. The Lord Jesus has got it covered for you. Um, you know, let me, let me finish. The ministry of church... Uh, there's many things churches need to do, but two big things churches need to always do. Fuel a greater fear of condemnation and foster a greater confidence in the salvation God has given. You want to find a good church? That's what a church ought to do. It ought to foster a greater fear of condemnation and, and foster a greater confidence in salvation. It ought to help you see more and more against the world thinking that there really is a judgment to come and it's terrifying. And it ought to, at the same time, help you see that that same God has provided an answer, that he has provided the fullness of salvation in the one who has not spared his own son, the one who has raised that son, who now has that son interceding on your behalf. It's an astonishing, powerful, stabilising truth for your life. You see, the resurrection of Jesus changes everything. This life's not it. There's a whole age to come. To live for this one is just insanity. This life's not it. The Lord Jesus is unique and special. He's not just one religious. He's, he's the only one. All that he said about life, death, judgment to come is true. And because he's resurrected, his death is forever applied to you. You, are, you have in heaven one who pleads for you before the Heavenly Father. You have Him as a great High Priest in heaven. And so, 
we are more than... Watch how separate us from the love of Christ. Nothing. We are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. There is nothing in life that can undo you if you continue to look to the Lord Jesus. Safe, stable, secure. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. And the impact of that resurrection is profound. Let's reflect continually on these things to do. Let me pray for us now. Heavenly Father, we do, um, we do thank you so much that you have done the most amazing work in human history. You have sent your Son, you have not spared your only Son, but given him up for us. We thank you that you have raised him to life, seating him on the throne of eternity. And we thank you that you have established him as an intercessor, as one who forever pleads the merits of his death on behalf of those who trust you. That we can be forever sure that you have justified us, declared us right, that we are secure in your hands, that nothing can undo us. Help us love these truths, know them more deeply and live to please you, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.